0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. I'm Henning Hoff, Executive Editor. The January-February issue of our journal is out. It's called A World of Frenemies. Ahead of the Munich Security Conference, Germany's big foreign policy meeting held every February, we try to sketch a picture of world affairs right now and of Germany's place within it. The term Frenemies sounds contemporary, but it's actually almost 70 years old. It was reportedly coined by American columnist and gossip writer Walter Winchell, who also was a dedicated anti-communist. How about calling the Russians our frenemies? Winchell asked in a column in the Nevada State Journal in May 1953. At first, the term frenemies didn't really stick. It only gained wider currency in the 1990s. In 2020, of course, it's an apt way of describing how most states relate to most other states in today's world, even if they are supposed to be partners. Take the United States. Since Donald Trump entered the White House, the U.S. seems to have lost interest in having allies. The current crisis with Iran following the targeted killing of General Qasem Soleimani has shown us much. European allies were only informed after the fact. For an overview of the frenemies landscape, we turn to Jörg Lau, foreign editor of Germany's prestigious weekly Die Zeit, who contributed the lead essay to our current issue. Thank you for having me. The German Chancellor of the 1980s and early 1990s, Helmut Kohl, once described Germany as surrounded by friends after unification. Today, it's fairer to say that it's surrounded by frenemies at best. How did this happen?
1: The situation that Helmut Kohl described right after reunification was indeed very harmonious compared to nowadays. Germany has lots of difficult partners friends that can turn into systemic rivals or even enemies if you look at some of our most important partners many things have happened there russia decided to be a challenger to the liberal world order and is trying to undermine election campaigns in uh, our partner countries turkey has become a almost dictatorship The Turkish president, while keeping many, many millions of uh, refugees in Syria, is also trying to threaten Europe that he might send these people. Then uh, Poland is also challenging the rule of law and uh, turning from a liberal democracy to something else. The UK decided to leave the European Union. The US is governed by Donald Trump. And even France is uh, the president, Emmanuel Macron, is putting many, many questions to the Germans that challenge their foreign policy consensus. So that's just a little overview
0: about these frenemies. Mm. You're saying that um, German foreign policy, or Germany in general, has suffered multiple shocks since 2014 with Russia invading Crimea. What, What were the effects of these
1: shocks? Well, the first shock was when the situation in Ukraine turned bad and Russia decided to invade Crimea and start this war in eastern Ukraine with troops that were not wearing badges first and then obviously they admitted that they were active there. So nobody foresaw that Russia would try to redraw borders within Europe by using force. Mm. So the whole mindset of post-reunification was that liberal democracy is a win-win game for everybody. So it can spread basically forever. And this was a shock moment when Putin decided that he was going to draw a red line right through Ukraine uh, when this, this game came to an end.
0: And Russia is the one thing. Then there was a double shock of uh, the Brexit referendum and uh, Donald Trump being elected U.S. president. And the final uh, knock, maybe <laughs> you're describing in the article, is that uh, Emmanuel Macron goes his own way. Elaborate a little. But uh, why was that so shocking for Berlin?
1: Berlin is, for many reasons, not a strong player in European foreign policy at the moment. The coalition that governs the so-called Grand Coalition is very divided on many, many issues. So it's not really able to respond uh, in a forceful way to what Emmanuel Macron suggests as um, the right way to reform Europe, to build European defense, and how to deal with Russia. Having this hyperactive French president in a moment when Germany is basically paralyzed when it comes to foreign policy also with the chancellor being a lame duck, she's not going to run again. That is something that is overwhelming for uh, the foreign policy establishment in Berlin these days.
0: You've actually said that, that the reaction from Berlin to all these developments is to play dead. What do you mean by that?
1: Take, for example, common European uh, defense. When uh, Emmanuel Macron criticized the situation within NATO as NATO being brain dead, that was uh, a very challenging and dangerous statement from the Berlin point of view because uh, NATO is seen in Berlin as life insurance, basically. Because we don't have the nukes that the French have, we totally depend on the American nuclear umbrella. So when our most important partner in Europe challenges this, he puts many, many inconvenient questions on the table, like, okay, if NATO is brain dead, are we going to have to build our own nukes? Are we going to have a common nuclear umbrella with France, Germany trying to phase out nuclear energy? There are many, many contradictions at the Mm.
0: moment here. Why do you think it is particularly Germany that finds it so difficult to to react to these new realities? Why is, is Germany so immobile or so reactive?
1: Well, I think there is one reason that is rather psychological. German politicians find it different, partly for historical reasons, to express German national interests, because obviously... A very aggressive foreign policy uh, from Germany has done a lot of harm in Europe. Our partners have a certain ambivalence towards us. They want Germany to lead, but they're also afraid of German uh, strength. So this ambivalence, I think, is, is uh, one reason for this paralyzing effect on, mm. on German foreign policy.
0: Mm. What would a German foreign policy look like? That really confronts this new world of frenemies. What would need to happen?
1: Many of the things that need to happen have already been expressed by German politicians. Years ago, the so-called Munich consensus, when three leading German politicians during the Munich Security Conference expressed the will to play a more active part in common defense, but also in supporting uh, all the institutions that are so important for the liberal world order, to play a more active part uh, diplomatically, but also militarily, um, to to not just consume security, but help produce it uh, with our partners. But nothing much uh, came of it. And uh, with the paralyzing situation of this coalition, it's hard to see how many meaningful initiatives could start. But its I don't think it's a problem of knowing what has to be done, but it's more of one of uh, being really decisive and uh, putting your money where your mouth is.
0: Mm. So it's not the lack of ideas, it's rather the, the lack of drive uh, to, to move things forward.
1: Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think so. I mean, this is a very confusing time with the UK leaving the EU, with uh, what's happening in the US and the confusion about uh, um, Donald Trump's foreign policy and his real attitude towards NATO or towards all kinds of alliances. So I don't think it's a time where you need bold, big, new ideas. It's more about being active, keeping what is already in place, repairing, improvising, and doing what the chancellor hinted to, actually, I think it was two years ago, when she said, we can't really rely on others to keep us safe. So the knowledge about the situation is already Mm. there.
2: Mm.
0: All these many things which need to be tackled now, do we have to wait for the Merkel era to end? Or how far do you see domestic and foreign contacts interlinked? I'm afraid so. Uh,
1: I don't think much will happen in the next year with the American election looming over everything. People are hedging their bets. And then we have this situation with Merkel being a lame duck. I don't expect big things to happen. But the time to debate these things is now and put ideas forward how you would go on from here, that should happen pretty soon. Because, I mean, we have, we have a very important election campaign coming on in a year or so. So there's not much time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Jörg Lau of die Zeit. You can read his article, Caught in the Headlights, in our January-February issue via our Android or iOS app or on BerlinPolicyJournal.com. Our enemies aren't always next door. As US Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas told us in an interview ahead of the Munich Security Conference, he thinks Europeans are underestimating the threat from China, which he says aims to split the West. Indeed, the question of how to handle China has gained a lot of traction in Germany in recent months. While Angela Merkel's government equivocates, parliamentarians have been trying to make China policy for the government. Norbert Röttgen, the influential chairman of the Bundestags Foreign Affairs Committee, has been rallying MPs for a motion to exclude Chinese telecoms provider Huawei from Germany's 5G mobile network, which is about to be constructed. 5G is crucially important. It builds the foundations of all our future digitized economies. But the question is whether a company that is ultimately controlled by the Chinese Communist Party and the state would not be tempted to use its position as a key hardware provider for spying and other nefarious purposes. The Trump administration has been lobbying, or indeed pressuring, Europeans to exclude Hawaii. To put this debate into perspective, we turn to Janka Ertl, Asia Director at the European Council on Foreign Relations, or ECFR. I started by asking Janka whether the German government is indeed underestimating the threat from China.
3: So the question is, does it define it as a threat at all at the moment? And I think we're not there yet. Um, The challenge that emanates from China is now very visibly on the agenda, but whether that could be considered or should be considered a threat is I think a question that we're still debating in the German policy community. I think what we're seeing is a movement towards understanding that China is not just a business partner, but considers a systemic rival, has a different system that we need to grapple with, and that dependency on China is a problem in the future. And I think the 5G conversation that we have been seeing in Berlin evolving over the last couple of months and kind of bringing the first time a China policy issue to the forefront of a political conversation is very indicative of that. It is the first time that we really have to debate how do we want to relate to China and who are we in this bigger geopolitical game that is currently taking place between the US and China, where we have to really redefine Europe's and Germany's role? So 5G which is the fifth generation of mobile telecommunication networks, which is not just faster internet, but it will connect in the future all sorts of devices and it will allow for applications such as autonomous driving or remote surgery that are um, currently unthinkable in this environment and it will allow us to operate in a network world.
0: Where do you see things moving? Because uh, the general take we had was that Merkel, the Chancellor, had already sort of decided not to exclude China, to somehow drive a middle way between the US and China and not letting herself being pushed into a position where she would have to confront China. Do you
3: see this eroding now? Yeah, because in Europe it is sinking in that that middle ground is shrinking there are moments where you have to make a call and when you're under pressure from your most important security provider and you are under pressure from your most important economic partner that's uncomfortable and we have in the past been very successful at finding that middle ground and still making great profits economically and now we're increasingly finding that there is no third option so if we have to make a call where will the chips fall and this is the point where we are in the European conversation more broadly And on the 5G, so the telecommunications issue, very specifically at this point in time, where it's a Huawei yes or no question that has to be answered. The specific problem that we see with Chinese vendors in the 5G market, Huawei and ZTE, which is a state-owned enterprise, is that they are relying on Chinese support. And that the Chinese state, by law, by the Chinese cybersecurity law and national security law, has the ability to kind of enforce its will on these companies. So a real question becomes whether our systems become dependent on China.
0: What's your sense? How will China react to a more confrontational Germany?
3: I don't think we will see... a much more confrontational Germany across the board. But there will always be these kinds of decisions now where there may be something that Berlin will have to make a call in one or the other direction. We will definitely see repercussions from a decision that is taken. We've seen that in other places, where in Australia or in Canada, where China has retaliated economically when political goals were not achieved. I am certain that uh, a decision to exclude Huawei and ZTE from 5G networks in Germany will certainly have an impact on the conversation. This will very much depend on the context. If it's a European decision or whether it's a German solo decision, it will very much depend on uh, the extent and the tonality of it but it would be naive to believe that there would be no repercussions.
0: You say repercussions. What repercussions?
3: So repercussions, I would say, has to be put very broadly in the beginning because we don't know. There is no clear-cut menu. It's pretty clear that there is a menu that China can pick from in terms of what kind of measures it would like to take. So that could be complications for the German auto industry, it could be tariffs, it could be other market access restrictions, it could be technology export restrictions, it could be all sorts of ways in which diplomatically, politically, or economically pressure can be exerted and pain can be inflicted upon the German economy.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Jan Kertl from the ECFR. So whichever way the Huawei question will be settled in the end, the challenge posed by China will occupy Germans and Europeans more and more. Asia's emerging superpower is moving ever closer to Europe. China's massive Belt and Road Initiative is supposed to provide the links and highways between the opposite ends of the Eurasian supercontinent. Our correspondent Jacob Madel is traveling the route from Brussels to Beijing and back and sends us audio
2: postcards from his journey. A long bus ride, two overnight trains and 65 hours later, and I'm on the wintry streets of Beijing. This is the Belt and Road Initiative's nerve centre, arguably the starting point of China's New Silk Road heading west to Europe. And yet, there's not much I can learn here about the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm tempted by the symbolism of standing in Tiananmen Square and reflecting upon the nature of Chinese foreign policy, but this trip is about what the Belt and Road Initiative means in practice how it manifests itself on the ground, and for that, talking to people in Beijing isn't particularly useful. That's because the Belt and Road isn't some unified grand plan orchestrated from Communist Party headquarters in Zhongnanhai. Unlike the EU's Juncker plan, there's no blueprint or project pipeline for the New Silk Road. There's not even an agreed-upon definition of what a Belt and Road project is. Something I found last month in Kazakhstan illustrates this perfectly. I was at Horgos. The visa-free trade hub straddling the border between Kazakhstan and China, and I was doing some duty-free shopping when I spotted a tin of powdered camel milk bearing the words One Belt, One Road. This tin of Kazakh camel milk, which, by the way, proudly claimed to be manufactured using German technology, certainly wasn't sanctioned by Xi Jinping. The Belt and Road is more like a brand than an infrastructure initiative, but even a brand is copyrighted. Perhaps the Belton Road is more like the word craft in craft beer, a slogan, an idea that draws on a series of connotations, in this case associating high-tech camel milk with a politically valuable zeitgeist of resurgent east-west connectivity. Just like the ancient Silk routes themselves, the New Nielsuk Road isn't a concrete line being drawn across Eurasia from point A to point B, it's a messy campaign that is driven by a vast range of interests and actors, only some of whom are sitting here in Beijing.
0: Jacob Medell from the New Silk Road. You can find more of his written dispatches on our website. And that's all for this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues Chiron Dowling and Noah Gordon and to our producer Susan Stone. Join us again in mid-February when we dive deeper into Germany's foreign policy choices as the country prepares to take over the EU presidency in the second half of 2020. Part of that will be the EU-China summit to be held in Leipzig. A high and possibly end point for Angela Merkel on the international stage. Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening.